The podcast show London is back for its second edition this spring, with PodPod proud to be media partners. The daytime event will once again bring together thousands from the global podcast community under one roof at the Business Design Centre in Islington on the 24th and 25th of May. Now, whether you're an independent podcast creator, industry professional or brand, this one-of-a-kind event is there to inspire, power and support the future of the entire podcasting world. And if you're looking for a podcast fan fix, the podcast show live brings a week-long live podcast festival to London from the 22nd of May to the 28th. It celebrates world-class talent and brings your favourite voices to major venues. For more information and to save 25% on day passes, visit thepodcastshowlondon.com. Hello, I'm Arvid Hickman and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. This week, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to take a look inwards under the bonnet of Adlan's workforce to have a look at the progress, or lack thereof, that has been made in areas such as gender and ethnic diversity and pay. Then we have a special guest, Sir Martin Sorrell, who's going to take a look outwards at the media landscape, the winners and losers, the threat of global streamers like Netflix and Disney+. He's going to also talk about the future of British TV broadcasters and what marketers really want from media partners during an economic downturn. Also, we're introducing a new segment called Media Mailbox, where you get to ask the questions. A bit later on, I'm going to tell you how to get involved. But to begin with, this week, the IPA, the Industry Body for Advertising, Media and Other Agencies, released its latest annual census that paints a picture of the UK advertising workforce. I'm joined by my colleague and campaign reporter, Charlotte Rawlings, to go through some of the key findings. Hello, Charlotte. How are you going? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Just trying to, you know, getting towards the end of school reports, hopefully. Yeah, an end is in sight. I'm sure all the agencies <laughs> sight, can't wait. <laughs> I bet they can't. I bet they can't. Anyway, you've had a chance to go through the numbers, but um, let's go through some of the key findings. Now, just over 100 IPA members took part in the census, and for the first time, UK agencies reported that they are employing more than 26,000 staff, and about 55% are women. The good news is that there have been improvements to gender and ethnic diversity across the board. The proportion of women occupying C-suite roles has risen from 33.5% in 2021 to 37.5% in 22. Media agencies have marginally more female representation in those upper echelons than their creative agency peers. In fact, we know among the top 10 largest media agencies in terms of billings, nine are led by women. At creative agencies, it's around four of the top 10. Now, ethnic diversity is also on the rise. In 2022, 23.6% of staff identified as non-white, compared with 18.3% in 2021. It's important to remember, Charlotte, that 10 years ago, that figure was only 10.6%. When we get to the C-suite level, the picture is a little bit more bleak in terms of ethnic diversity. The proportion of non-white leaders increased from 7.1% in 21 to 11.2, with a pretty even spread between media, creative and others. A couple of other important points. Churn rates are soaring. They've spiked from 26% in 21 to 32.4% in just one year. And I know several agency bosses are really concerned about how they hold on to their top talent. Um, And ageism is still a blind spot for the industry. The survey showed the proportion of over 50s in Adland has hardly moved. Charlotte, what did we learn about industry pay? 
So when we're looking at pay gap figures, uh, the average gender pay gap reported in September 2022 was 17.4% in favour of men, an improvement on the 23.3% reported in 2021. The average gender uh, gap at media agencies was 14.3% down from 18.9% in 2021. Mm-hmm. And for creative and other types of agencies, the gap has reduced from 25% in 2021 to 21.1% in 2022. Right. That's quite interesting, isn't it, Charlotte? Because it kind of shows that um, those pay gap figures are improving across the board. Yeah, no, it's it's good to see that um, the industry is heading in the right direction. And interestingly, the average pay gaps across different job titles were lower than the overall average, uh, irrespective of rank. For example, the average pay gap for C-suite executives was 12.2%. And for junior level workers, it was actually 1.2% in favour of women. That's interesting, isn't it? Why, why is that? Well, the simple fact is that there are far more men in high paid roles and women in low paid roles. What did you discover when it came to ethnicity pay gap? Yeah. Well, there's not much more news to add there, really. The ethnicity pay gap has hovered around the 21% mark where it was last year. Okay, so it sounds like there's plenty of work to be done when it comes to ethnicity pay. Charlotte, I want want to get your impressions about sort of the gender and ethnic diversity of the industry. You're relatively new to this industry in terms of being a journalist. Um, First of all, what are your impressions about the diversity of Adland? Yeah, so I've been at Campaign for just over a year, uh, getting acquainted with agencies. And I feel like every industry is going to be dominated by white men. Uh, That's not exactly a groundbreaking take because that's just how the system has worked for years and years. Um, But going by what I've been exposed to during my time here, I would say, although I've met some incredible women in senior leadership, the majority of people I've met have been white men um so it goes to show even like a creative industry that aims to speak to and reflect a like a realistic portrayal of the world still has a bit of work to do when it comes to the people who are at the top and who are overseeing all of this effort to be more inclusive okay and did any of these findings from the ipa census surprise you and if so which ones I mean, it was the ethnicity stats that surprised me the most. Um, Even though there have been notable improvements in these figures, I was surprised in terms of the proportion of people from minority ethnic backgrounds working in the industry wasn't completely reflective of the amount of people living in large cities, you know, where the population is more diverse and also where most of these media and ad agencies are based. I mean, it would be good to see more of an improvement like next year and more of an accurate portrayal of what cities like London actually look like. Also, it was frustrating to see that the ethnicity pay gap hasn't really improved. Like all of these, all of these things are related, aren't they? Like if we want those stats to improve the industry needs to make sure it's doing all it can to get more diverse talent in. Yeah, it's a really good point that you raise about when you look at the sort of ethnicity diversity figures and you compare them to the average um, ethnicity of the country, that they're probably not too far off. But when you actually think about where agencies are based, like, you know, in big cities, uh, primarily in London, but also in places like Manchester, you know, we have BAME representation in London of around 46% of the population. In Manchester, I think it's around a third. So when you put it in that context, it, it really sort of illustrates how far this industry has to go to really reflect the populations of not only where it's based, but the populations and clients that it serves. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like talking about, especially young people trying to get into the industry, and young people tend to like move around and move to the move to the bigger cities, if they're studying things at uni, or if they're moving to, you know, if they're moving for employment. And I mean, there are all of these 
issues surrounding whether agencies should be less London-based and less of the big cities and more regional. But one of the perks of it being in the cities is that there's more of an opportunity for more diverse talent to break through. And in terms of like how advertising presents itself to young people, particularly at uni, from my experience, I don't think it makes the most of its versatility. I think there's potential there to market itself as a career that makes the most of so many different skills. Um, there's a bit of business studies there. There's a bit of creativity. There's subjects like sociology, psychology, all of these things. There's so much stuff that comes into play that can appeal to everyone from all walks of life. And I think that's quite unique. And maybe like the industry should harness that a bit more to try and attract more young people into the sector. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because when you think about the your levels of creativity and advertising, and you know, the core job of, of advertising is to, to promote um, brands and, and, and what have you. Same with other areas of communications. Mm. It seems to be quite poor at doing it its own, doing it itself basically, and selling itself to a whole batch of students. Is that is that kind of your observation? Did you know much about advertising, for example, before before you well when you're at that university level? Yeah, I mean it's difficult to say really because I think when I took I took media studies at A level, and I think a lot of people in my class chose to take that subject because they'd seen Mad Men on TV, and obviously that's just not that's not an accurate portrayal of what the industry is like now. Um, and I don't know, it gives off this impression of like it's all about selling, 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 and like you say, that's obviously the that's the main that's the main point of the industry. Um, but there's all of these other aspects involved in it too. And there's there's the, all these incredible people behind it. And I think if there was less of a less of a focus on the selling, 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 um, and more of a focus on the versatility of the of the job, that that might make it seem a little bit more accessible and make the space a bit more welcoming towards all different types of people. Yeah, maybe maybe we need a, a, a sequel to Mad Men that's not called Mad Men and that actually uh, portrays the industry in a, in a much better light and, and the way that we both know it to be. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Charlotte. Really appreciate it. No problem. So Martin Sorrell recently joined Campaign's TV Advertising Summit to share his views about the media and TV landscape during such uncertain times. He talked about whether legacy UK TV broadcasters could survive against the threat of large global streamers and tech companies, what companies and their marketers are looking for during a downturn, and whether we could see more consolidation of TV and media companies in the UK. Now, it's fair to say his presentation was insightful, carefully considered, but also thought-provoking. So Martin is not known for pulling punches and stayed true to form. We're going to play a condensed version of my discussion with him in a moment, but first, a bit of context. So Martin opened our discussion by laying out the three major issues that are causing huge uncertainty across the world. The first one is the frayed relationship between the US and China. The second is the ongoing war in Ukraine. And the third is the situation in Iran. He believes companies will look to expand and invest more into emerging economies like Latin America, the Middle East and Asia, but paints a much gloomier picture for Europe and in particular the UK. Against this backdrop, I asked Martin what clients were really looking for from the media partners this year. Here's what he said. The things that will dominate 23 and 24 in front of the US presidential election, and in fact our own election, general election, will be two things. One, an emphasis on performance and activation. Clients will be looking for results. You know, you saw Mark Pritchard's speech just recently 
on the subject of TV frequency capping mm. uh, and reach. And that obviously has heavy implications, not just for, for advertising, but particularly for TV. And then, uh, and then uh, secondly, uh, a reduction in cost. Uh, clients will be very focused on reducing cost and accelerating digital transformation, particularly those companies that have already started to get into significant digital transformation programs. So for ourselves, which operates, S4 and Media Months operates down the funnel, so to speak, activation and performance, and then secondly, digital transformation. Those are the two critical trends, I think, in 23 and 24, given that economic environment that I've tried to outline as a whole. Okay. So what does this mean for legacy TV broadcasters? Well, you know, when you talk about TV, Arvind, I think you have to be define it quite carefully. Are we talking about legacy, uh, free-to-air networks, or are we talking about screens in the broadest sense? Uh, I think the outlook for screens in the broadest sense is very positive. But if you're talking about narrowly uh, free-to-air television, network television, it is much more tepid. And the, the, the data never lies. And advertising as a proportion of GDP, let's take the U.S. as an example, used to be when I started at Sarches many, many years ago, uh, you saw a climb in advertising proportion, proportion of GDP to about 2%. It then fell back before the rise of the Internet to, to well, during the, during the rise of the Internet, down to about 1%, a little bit less than 1%, is now forecast to increase to about 1.5% after the recent revisions as we came out of uh, economic expansion after COVID. Uh, and all of that growth from 1% to 1.5% is being driven by the digital screen mm. and the digital activity. Free-to-air television has declined very significantly as a proportion of total advertising when I started to where it is now and will continue to flatline or, or decline. I mean, it's interesting, in your introduction, when you, when you highlighted the growth that we've seen in TV and you were focusing on free-to-air TV, it's all around live events and particularly sporting events. Mm -hmm. you'll, continue, you'll continue to see that, but increasingly... Any growth in the screen market is going to be driven by growth in digital TV. So it will be over-the-top, addressable TV, targeted TV, the streamers. And, you know, you pointed out in your introduction quite rightly the, the new entrants. You mentioned Netflix and Disney+. Plus, and just to highlight, Netflix does about $30 billion in subs every year. YouTube does about 30 billion in advertising every year. And what Netflix is trying to do is to build a balanced model, which I think is the way to go. Same, same for Disney Plus. But you shouldn't forget the other new entrants to the market. Apple, which is probably doing about 7 billion as best as we can figure it out. It's not a disclosed number in terms of TV advertising, uh, screen, screen advertising. Uh, and then Microsoft, which is going to be the big player. We saw the announcement this morning of the increased scope with NVIDIA. If the, if the Activision deal goes through, together with Microsoft's relationship uh, with, um, with Netflix and together with its development of 
chatbots, AI, they are going to become a very significant player. They're already at about 11 billion uh, and, and rising. I just give a scale comparison. Amazon's about 40 billion last year, about TV, over advertising. Uh, Google, about 225 billion. Uh, Facebook, about 115 billion. So that's the orders of magnitude. TikTok, ex China, out of China, probably last year was about 10 billion. Uh, this year we'll see where they get to out of China given regulatory push, etc. But I think they will continue to expand. So uh, just to put it in perspective, Twitter and Snap. Well, Twitter was about 5 billion, probably now about 2.5. Uh, Snap, about 5.5. So that gives you orders of magnitude. Okay. You mentioned the impact of Netflix and Disney and Apple and Microsoft yep. coming into this market. How do you think this will play out? for UK TV broadcasters. Should they be worried? And, and if so, what do they need to do to future-proof their business? Well, they, they, they should be. I mean, just like the advertising agency holding companies should be worried. And there's something I want to get into, which I think is really significant and a significant change, which I wouldn't say it's so early in its evolution that it's very difficult to, to, to accurately predict what's going to happen. But I, we think... At S4 and Media Months, we were just talking yesterday in our performance review for January uh, about what the implications are. Uh, I mean, artificial intelligence or artificial generative intelligence is going to have a huge impact, and I think that impact has been underplayed already, if it's possible, not just on the creative side of the industry, but also on the media side of the industry. We'll get into that. Um, the, the, the impact on the TV companies that you asked about is exactly the same as the impact on the holding companies. You know, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And what we're going to see, I think, as a result of the growth of AI is a, is a greater and greater focus on the power of machines and algorithms, particularly on the media side of the industry. I think that's, it, it's sort of been missed. Uh, to date. I mean, I remember uh, a few years ago, people telling me the story. It's actually after I left uh, WPP in, in, um, eight, 80, in um, uh, five years ago. The, the, uh, there were stories about the platforms having direct conversations with clients uh, on advertising and, and programmatic advertising. And the platforms couldn't or wouldn't do that because it's not in their nature to build uh, people-driven solutions. They are very capital-intensive. Revenue per head is much higher. Uh, and in those days, five years ago, it would be virtually impossible, or not, not impossible, they could have done it, uh, but it would have been very unproductive for them to have done it because of the labor intensity of, of what they were doing. Today, it's a very different picture. Because of the growth of AI, and, because, and we're just in the foothills, uh, well, probably beneath the foothills of that development, what you're going to see, in my view, is a heavy emphasis, not just on the creative side of the business, not just on the copywriting side or the executional side of the business, but also on the media planning and buying side. You're going to see a very heavy emphasis on the use of algorithms to determine the, the optimal uh, deployment 
of resources. If you take Mark Pritchard's commentary, and I, I remember last year, um, about this time last year, maybe a little bit later, uh, about June, we did a paper on TV frequency capping and reach. And I sent it to the CMOs of three major companies. And it's, I've never experienced anything like it. I've got almost instantaneous responses. These were three companies that were, were responsible for about 20 billion of uh, advertising spend globally. So these were big players. And the CMO of each company said TV frequency capping, which Mark touched on, I think, in an ANA speech a few, few days ago, uh, was front and center their biggest concern. They were sick and tired of needlessly repeating TV ads in breaks, which annoyed consumers and annoyed clients in terms of wastage. And the other point was that the reach of traditional TV had continued to depreciate, to deprecate, uh, as a result of younger people in particular switching to alternative forms, alternative screens. What AI now enables you to do is to program, and, and the, the danger signal for the holding companies, to enable the uh, clients to do it directly with the platforms, maybe with advice from intermediaries such as ourselves. You know, the, it would follow the logic that you, you don't give Rupert Murdoch all of your advertising budget to deploy on his media. You want somebody to, to check and balance it. But you're going to see, I think, a major shift in the way that clients execute the deployment uh, of their budgets. And I, and I think, to some extent, we've sort of missed that as an industry as yet. But it's going to come, and it's going to come very fast. And it's going to be, what's really interesting about it is it calls into question massive deployment of people. So in our case, we have 9,000 people in 32 countries. We're going to be, we are, we are a motor torpedo boat as opposed to an aircraft carrier. And it raises the question of whether motor torpedo boats will have increased velocity and flexibility in a world where the key issue will be how the the mathematical models work and how effective they are rather than the deployment of huge armies of people around the world to to implement. So I think that's, to my mind, the biggest change. Now, coming back to the heart of your question, that raises very big questions for traditional television companies that are trying to deploy uh, or, or change their asset distribution into new screens. Mm. That's an interesting point, and on our briefing call, we did discuss this transition from linear viewing to streaming and on-demand. We've seen in this market, at least, uh, some substantial bets by the likes of ITV with ITVX. What do you think about that whole transition, and do you think it's too little too late for some of the TV broadcasters trying to really beef up their, their digital distribution? Well, well it's, 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 it's very difficult. I mean, it's easy to criticized from the sidelines, it's very difficult to do. I mean, when you have entrenched assets and entrenched approaches, and you're trying to diversify, you know, it's a bit like the automobile manufacturers and uh, e-vehicles, uh, electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles, you know, it's much easier for Tesla than it is for a traditional uh, manufacturer such as Ford or GM. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. You know, do you do it within the confines of your existing business? Do you do it separately? How do you integrate the two? 
very, very difficult for an incumbent to shift its asset pack pattern and deployment pattern into anything um, of significance. It's much easier for the um, disruptor. You know, it's much easier for us uh, in, in relation to the holding companies, for example, who have traditional ways of doing things uh, and traditional deployment. It's much easier for us to deploy new assets and new ways of doing things in an effective way. So um, I, I would say in the case of the traditional TV companies, it's extremely difficult to do. It's much easier for a Disney Plus uh, in the context of a Disney or a Netflix. It, I mean, you have to remember that you know, Reed Hastings said for many years, in fact, it was a core part of the operating philosophy of Netflix that consumers you know, did, didn't like invasive or interruptive uh, advertising. And therefore, their model, but he, he saw the light of day because... I think the wake-up moment was when YouTube crossed 30 billion in terms of ad revenues, which is the same, as I said before, as the Netflix subscription base. So uh, having said all that, I, I think what we... It's very difficult for the traditional incumbent to make the change fast enough. I said before, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, and, and it's very difficult to, to alter your perspective from your traditional approach to your new approach. So... These efforts, particularly by the UK broadcasters, which is a relatively small market, in the, it's a, a significant market, but relatively small in a global context, and the importance of libraries, the importance of in, entrenched contact, content becomes more and more important. And the cost, you know, if you look at the amounts of money that Amazon with Prime, uh, that Netflix, that Disney, in addition to their libraries that they have, the amount of money that they are pouring into content, I think it will be very difficult for local um, geographical footprint broadcasters to continue to compete effectively uh, either nationally or internationally. One other thing I would add, which is what I think really interesting, we've seen in the work that we've done for the streamers, and particularly the local, what I would call the more local streamers, such as, you know, in South America, in Mexico or Brazil, that low, the, the ink, you know, the campaign, for example, will always write about the big blockbusters. But what really scores is, and really does well, is well-directed, well-targeted local content, regional or national content. And I think that's where I see very significant opportunities. So it's not all sort of doom and gloom. I mean, when, if you can produce very strong local content, Hispanic content, Portuguese content, whatever it happens to be in Latin American cases, it can be extremely effective. But I think broadly, the answer to your question, it is going to be increasingly difficult for national broadcasters to compete in the areas that you're talking about uh, against these very big Goliaths. I mean, there's always room for the Davids, but it's very difficult for them to compete against the Goliaths. Just, just building on that, do you foresee some of the Goliaths perhaps eyeing some of the Davids in this market for yes. consolidation? Yeah, I, think, or, I, think, I, I think that's inevitable. I mean, um, you know, when you when you look at what Microsoft is doing, and of course this raises all the, the regulatory issues that surrounded the Activision uh, or how surrounding at the moment the Activision deal. You saw Microsoft's uh, attempt with its... Um, with its opening up of its uh, approach to NVIDIA this morning, 
uh, to show, you know, to show the CMA here in the UK that they are willing to sort of cooperate and Call of Duty will be made available. They don't want to sell Call of Duty. They want to make it available. And, you know, there's an, an analogy there for, for the broadcasters. You will see continue. There, there are too many streamers. I mean, there is going to be a significant consolidation. You know, the, the economics just don't work out. So, you know, I think the winners, the, 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 winner, the new winners, you know, in addition to Alphabet, in addition to Meta, you know, which has had a hell of a kicking, I think unjustifiably, because I think they have made significant efforts to deal with the privacy issues, brand safety issues, etc. But And I think that's starting to right itself. Now you're starting to see Meta recover quite significantly, and I think you'll be continued to be surprised by how well Meta does. But in addition to Alphabet, in addition to Meta, in addition to Amazon, in addition to Alibaba, Tencent, and TikTok, subject by Dance, which is the parent, subject to what the U.S. regulators do in relation to TikTok and their, their Chinese server issue, etc. Those six, plus Apple, uh, plus Microsoft, plus Netflix, plus Disney, those to my timeline, you, you never count out Brian Roberts either, but Comcast, but the, those, those probably, to my mind, are going to be the really big, big players. Uh, and inevitably, you'll see more consolidation at a national level because they will be seeking to broaden their footprint and they're going to start to play on a global basis. And, and for a national broadcaster, that makes life even more difficult. You know, if I said to you, what's the market cap? It's a bit like saying, hey, what's the market cap of Marks and Spencers? We would, we would guess that Marks and Spencers or ITV's market cap was far more significant than it actually is currently. And the reason is, in our minds, these are brands that play, play very importantly, but in a global context, they're not de minimis, but, you know, competitively, it's a very much more difficult road to hoe. Having said that, you know, lively, well-run companies with lively CEOs and boards that, that actually do worry about shareholder value as opposed to some that don't, um, will, will succeed. But I think generally, you know, the, the, those global companies that you're talking about uh, or pointing to will continue to dominate and dominate even more further. Well, there you go. Some really punchy views from Sir Martin Sorrell. You might have a question or two about some of Sir Martin's predictions. For example, will British TV broadcasters be acquired by Netflix or Disney? Will marketers ignore brand and focus more on performance? Or can Adland ever close the gender pay gap? The good news is the campaign podcast is introducing a new segment that may have answers to some of these pressing industry concerns. In March, we are launching the Media Mailbox for our media-focused campaign podcast. The idea is simple. We want you, our valued listeners, to ask any questions about the media and advertising industry, and an industry leader will be on hand to answer these and discuss them with the campaign team. All you need to do to take part is email a question to campaign at haymarket.com with the words media mailbox in the subject line. 
You may choose to leave a name and where you're from or stay anonymous as long as we can verify you are a real person and not chat GPT. The aim of the Q&A session is that we want to know what is on your mind and get a healthy discussion going. So please fire away your questions to campaign at haymarket.com and get involved today. Now, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Thank you to Charlotte Samartin and our production team of Navpal and Hannah Holt. If you'd like to keep up with industry news, views and analysis, please visit our website campaignlive.co.uk. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please follow us where you listen to your favorite pods. We hope you'll join us next time on behalf of the campaign team. Goodbye. If you enjoyed today's campaign podcast and feel inspired to learn more about podcasting, check out the podcast show London. It's the biggest international festival for the business of podcasting and will bring together thousands from the global podcasting community under one roof at the Business Design Center in Islington on the 24th and 25th of May. Now, whether you're an independent podcast creator, industry professional or brand, this one of a kind event is there to inspire, power and support the future of the entire podcasting world. For more information and to save 20% on a day pass, please visit the podcast show London, all one word, dot com. That is the podcast show London dot com.